My name is Greg Boyd. I'm the senior pastor here at Woodland Hills Church. If you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of... Wrong! <laughs> turn to the book of Romans. Uh, that's another book in the New Testament. You maybe didn't know it if you've been only here for about a year. There's, there's actually more books in the New Testament than the book of Luke. We're studying the book of Luke. We're going verse by verse. Uh, and I'm actually going to read from the book of Luke for a little bit, but you can turn to the book of Romans because that's the main one I'm going to be preaching out of. Uh, we're looking at Luke chapter 3, and we've been focusing the last four times that I've spoken. We've been focusing on baptism because that's largely what Luke 3 is about. Uh, and that's been leading up to this day where we're going to, after this service, go to Phelan Park and have a bap baptismal service. Uh, we've got 60, 70 people or so who are going to be baptized. We're having another baptismal service uh, in, in August, August 20th. So we've been talking about baptism. And the verse that we're using kind of as a launching pad in Luke 3 is Luke chapter 3, verse 3. We actually read the first uh, 14 verses of this chapter, but just to kind of remind us. Oh, and I'm titling this Buried and Risen with Christ. That's the... Because that's the, really the meaning of, of baptism, as we'll see here. It says in Luke chapter 3 that John the Baptist was out in the country around Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And what we've seen here in the, pre, in the study so far is that John was, was part of this movement that went on for about two centuries before the time of Christ, where a number of people were sensing that the Lord was going to do something unique and return to, or come to earth. And they hit on a prophecy from the book of Isaiah that seemed to suggest that he was going to appear in the wilderness. So whole communities of people moved out into the wilderness in the Jordan area. The Essenes, from which we get the Dead Sea Scrolls, was the most famous of these groups, but there were others. John the Baptist likely was, was one of these groups, but he was the one that the Lord appointed from the start to be the one to, to usher in or to point out the real Messiah. What all these groups had in common, among other things, is that they baptized people, immersed them as a way of initiating them into the community. And as we saw, the baptism was a sign that you have turned your life around, you were dying to your old self, you were now going to live for God, and you were going to join the community of those who are preparing the way for the Lord. That's the baptism of repentance, the baptism of turning around that John had. Then last week we looked at the distinctive Christian meaning of baptism. When the, the, the church was birthed on the day of Pentecost after Jesus died and rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, uh, right from the get-go, the first sermon ever preached mentions baptism. So the early church carried on the practice of baptism. And it keeps the meaning about turning, turning to God and joining the community and preparing the way of the Lord. But it adds to that meaning. And so we're looking here at the distinctive Christian meaning of baptism. And what we saw last week was, among other things, this. Peter stands up and preaches, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus. Uh, Christian baptism is in the name of Jesus. Now that isn't to say that it's a magical formula, as we said last week, that either validates or invalidates baptism. But it means in that culture to be baptized in the name of someone or to do anything in the name of someone is to do it with a view towards them, for the sake of them and by, under the authority of this person. So Christian baptism, whereas John's baptism was just about uh, a baptism of repentance, Christian baptism is done with a view towards, in the light of, for the sake of, and under the authority of Jesus Christ. In the light of what God has done for us in Jesus, in the light of that fact that he became a human being, he died on the cross to rescue us from the enemy, to free us, in the light of the fact that he's birthed through the power of his spirit, this marvelous, uh, subversive kingdom that's going on in the world, in the light of all that, 
As our first act of obedience, we are to be baptized. We turn from our old way, turn to God, join the community of those who are preparing the way of the Lord, and we express all that by being dipped in water. Now, I want to take this a step further, go a little bit deeper, and to do that, we're going to look at the book of Romans, which is, gives us the, the most in-depth uh, treatment of baptism in the New Testament. So, we'll read from the book of Romans. Uh, chapter 6, and I'll start with verse 1, uh, and I'm reading from the TNIV version. Now, Paul in Romans 5 was talking about grace, 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 marvelous grace, wonderful grace. And then in, verse, in chapter 6, he says, well, what shall we say then? In, in response to all this grace stuff, what should we say? And some people were saying then, as they say now, well, if we're saved by grace, let's just send our brains out so grace may increase. And that brings us to this ch chapter. What shall we say then, Paul says? In the light of all this, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? The idea here, and it's still prevalent today, is this. If God loves to forgive us and we love to sin, what a deal. <laughs> you know, this, we'll, we'll just keep sinning so God will keep forgiving us. But Paul says, by no means. In fact, in, in the Greek, it's megenato, which means just not a chance, no way, au contraire, get it out of your head. That's screwed up. That's my paraphrase. And here's why. We are those who have died to sin. Look at that past tense. It's a past fact. It's settled. We've died to sin. So, how can we live in it any longer? Wait a second here, Paul says. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus, you're baptized into his death. Literally, you were immersed into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have a new life. We may live a new life. Then to go down to verse 10, he says, The death that Christ died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, in the same way that Christ is now, his death was to sin, his life is to God. In the same way, count yourselves. The Greek word there is logizomai, which means think about yourself. You th think about yourself, picture yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And therefore, because of the fact that you are dead to sin, and because of the fact that you are alive in Christ, and because of the fact that you're thinking about that way, thinking that way now, Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you may obey its evil desires. This is a powerful and profound passage. Put your thinking caps on. This passage says something powerful about us, and it says something profound about baptism. And those are the two things we're going to talk about here in the next 25 minutes. Here's what it says about us. I want us to notice that when Paul's dealing with an issue of rampant sin in the Roman congregation, that's not a new American thing, that's a pretty old thing. He's dealing with this issue of sin. But Paul doesn't go right after the behavior. In fact, Paul doesn't mention behavior until verse 12, when he says, therefore, put off sin in your mortal body. Paul knows what we all must know and what we all need to remember, and that is that behavior is never the primary issue. The primary issue is your identity and how do you think about that identity in your head. Because all your behavior is just a footnote about the story you're telling yourself in your head. So what Paul does in Romans 6 
is he's, he, instead of going right after the behavior, he stops and says, wait a minute, don't you know who you are? And then, don't you know how you should think? And then he says, and therefore get your behavior to line up with who you are and how you think about yourself. You see how that pattern flows? Paul uses what I might call a, um, a correction of affirmation. He, uh, the way he's going to correct behavior is not by going first and foremost at the behavior, but by affirming an identity, which if the people get it, they'll see that it's inconsistent with their behavior. Here's who you are, and therefore do you see that this behavior is not consistent with who you are? That's the problem the Romans are having. You see, they're, they're, uh, they're thinking that grace is simply forgiveness. And so they want to keep on sinning, so they keep on being forgiven. But grace, Paul is saying, does more than just forgive us. It changes us. It gives us a new being. It gives us a new identity. It changes, if you will, our ontological status. It changes the metaphysical reality. You're a new creature in Christ Jesus. And, and the kind of creature you are in Christ Jesus is one who participates in Christ's death and therefore participates in Christ's resurrection. You, are, you have resurrection power living in you. And sin is, though it may not feel like this to you this morning, what's true if you have surrendered your life to Christ is that sin really is against your nature. So Paul is trying to affirm their identity in order to change their behavior, to get their behavior to line up with their identity. It's a correction of affirmation. It contrasts with, in fact, it's the opposite of, Another approach to trying to change behavior, which I might call not a correction of affirmation, but a correction of shame. Paul affirms an identity to contrast it with behavior. An approach of shame, by contrast, looks at the behavior and draws a conclusion about identity. Since you act this way, you are this sort of person. That's a, a, more of a shame approach. For example, uh, this last week at Target, uh, I, I get the best sermon examples from Target on University Avenue, I'm telling you. I, I use them. Sometimes I just go hang out there because I'm out of sermon material. Somebody do something. I can no, uh, but I, I, I was uh, there, and, and there's this lady in the next aisle who her son was acting in inappropriate ways for sure. But she turns to him, and after a few, like, after a few of those, she says very loudly, You stupid, worthless piece of excrement. But she didn't say excrement. Uh, and, and, and you worthless piece of boof. And when I hear stuff like that, I just like, ah. See, this is a shame approach. And the lady, I'm sure, is just replaying tapes that were, were given to her. You know, the tapes kick in, she just says it. But what she's doing is she's looking at behavior and drawing a conclusion about this kid's identity. Since you're acting worthless, you are worthless. And I think she thinks it's going to help change his behavior, but in fact, it never does that. What the shame approach always does, this is why it's such a, 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 a demonic thing, is it doesn't change a person's behavior. It simply locks in an identity that's going to ensure that the behavior continues. Because now this kid, instead of thinking that I'm basically a good kid who sometimes does stupid things, now the kid's thinking I'm a worthless piece of blank, and so it's appropriate for me to always do these stupid, worthless things. That's what the shame approach does. It locks in an identity. I remember when I was in seventh grade, um, 
I was uh, a uh, drummer in this band, uh, and the, uh, the rest of the band was all older than me. Uh, they were like in 10th and 11th grade, and we didn't get a whole lot of gigs, uh, so we didn't make a whole lot of money, but the way we would get money to upgrade our equipment is by stealing things and then selling it. And since I was invited to be part of this band, I had to carry my weight and you know, put into the pool uh, of stuff. So they taught me how to shoplift. Uh, I had a special long raincoat that was made with special lining on the inside and a special slot right here. And uh, what I was going to do is go to the store and steal a bunch of records. This is back in the dinosaur days when they used to have those plastic things called records. And I'd slip it into my coat. And so this is my first expedition. I hitchhike downtown St. Paul and I'm going into Dayton's and I'm going to shoplift uh, in their music department with all these records. And I got my nice professional coat on. I feel a little bit like James Bond here, you know. And I got my sunglasses. That doesn't look suspicious, does it? What's particularly bad is that it's a hot July day and here I am wearing a long coat. <laughs> Not the brightest kid on the block. Uh, and so I'm putting in these records and, and, and you know, it, greed got me here because I, you know, I figure I got one or two. The first couple of years, you're just really afraid, but you figure since I didn't get caught, you know, man, I must be good at this. So, you know, within about an hour, I got, li I got albums lined in my coat. So the coat's out like this on a hot July day with sunglasses, you know, walking around. Anyways, uh, I'm walking out of the store, and of course, the undercover policeman then gets me and says, I, I'm thinking you weren't going to pay for those, were you? He takes me down to the, uh, to the police station with all these criminals around there. They call my parents. I'm in the room when this sergeant calls, and I heard the scream of my mom uh, on the other end of the phone. In fact, the, the, the sergeant had to put the phone away from this. And I knew I was in deep doo-doo. My mom and dad come down, and they pick me up at this police station, and they drive me home. That was the longest ride of my life. And my dad, God bless him, and God rest his soul, he was just so livid. Things came out of his mouth that I'm sure today he wouldn't say. Uh, but driving home, he says, this is great. This is just blankly, blink, 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 great. My dad was the all-time most ingenious swearer in the world. <laughs> he, was, he was a poet. Uh, and uh, it all came out, that ride home. And uh, he goes, this is great. My, my, my son is a thief. I, I, I raised a thief. My son is a thief. This is, boy, are, are we proud or what? My, yeah, Greg is a thief. We all just advertise this to the world. And I had a certificate of arrest, you know. So he says, I know what we'll do. How should we proclaim to the world that Greg is a thief? Uh, let's frame this and let's put it on the wall so everyone who comes in can see that my son is a blankety blank 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 thief. I know what we'll do. Let's hang it all right next to all of Chris's football and baseball trophies. That was my brother. And that will, well, that will make everyone proud. And I'm sure he was just venting, and maybe he thought this was going to make sure I never did this again. But see, what it was doing, I was in the back seat of the car, and, and there was, at that point in my life, still a little part of me that wanted to please him. But I think that part of me got killed that day. Because I'm sitting back there, and I'm just getting embittered. It's like, fine. fine. Oh, what a disappointment I am. Man, what a, okay, if, that, if, that's what, if I'm a thief, then I'm fine. That's what I'll do. And I, I locked in that identity. The shame approach always does that. It draws a conclusion about a person's identity and worth on the basis of their behavior. That's not the approach that, that Paul uses here. It's not the approach that God uses. Paul doesn't just first and foremost go after the behavior. What's wrong with you? Since you are sinning, well, then you're just a bunch of reprobate sinners. That's what you are. You're maggot's breath. You're enemies of God, yada, yada. That would be the shame approach, but Paul doesn't do that. He says, you're sinning. No, no, wait a second. And now he starts an affirmation. You are 
a child of God. You are dead in Christ Jesus to that old self. You're alive. You participate in Christ's death. You participate in his resurrection. He goes forward with an affirmation. This is really a, the, the, the kingdom approach. Because it's the only approach that's consistent with living 24-7 in kingdom love. Paul says that love always believes the best and hopes the best. It believes all things and hopes all things. What love does is it finds something to ascribe worth to and calls it out. It's a kingdom approach. And in doing that, you say, you are a this, and therefore this behavior is unacceptable. You see, because you're not this way, because you're not a thief, Greg, you're a good kid, this stealing behavior is not appropriate to you. You affirm the worth of the person and call it out, and that's what changes the behavior. That, that, that's what Paul's doing here. I, I also had my dad give an example of that in my life. About four years later, I was in the 11th grade, and I came home one night, and, and I, at this point, was, was my life for the last four years has been pretty bad. I was doing a lot of drugs and getting involved in a lot of trouble because I was locked in on that identity. And uh, I came home about one in the morning, and I was higher than a kite. I was doing a lot of drugs. And, um, but God was starting to deal with me as I look back on it because I was, not, I was feeling yicky about it. I was getting more and more uncomfortable with this. But I come home. My dad was sitting in the living room. And at this point in his life, he was a very lonely man who drank too much, and he'd been drinking that night. And so that's why he didn't notice that I was stoned because we were both stoned. And... Um, but, but I, I had won a wrestling match the day before or something, and I come in there, and my dad's sitting in the couch all by himself. It's such a sad sight in this dark room. And uh, he just says, Greg, you know, boy, you were really good yesterday in that wrestling match. And um, I'm so proud of you. You make a dad proud. And I'm sitting here higher than a kite, and now I'm feeling in a good way conviction. Now, See, he affirms something in me. And, and he says, you make a dad proud. Now, I'm thinking, oh, if he knew what I was doing just an hour ago, he wouldn't be proud. And it made me want to change. When he affirmed that, it made me want to change my life. It gave me, like, am I really the kind of kid that would make a dad proud? And some part of me was saying, I could be that. And therefore, this behavior is inappropriate. That's God's approach to us. That's the kingdom approach. You find something to affirm and you call it out. And the contradiction between who the person is and what the person does motivates them to change what the person does. Parents, I want to encourage you to have a kingdom approach to your kids. Um, you've got to crack down on behavior. Hear me on this. I'm not saying go, ever go light on that. Sometimes you've got to crack down. Love sometimes is tough. But as you're cracking down on your kids... It's got to come out of a center of affirmation that, uh, where you agree with God that this kid, and sometimes you just do it by faith. Sometimes it's like finding a needle in the middle of a haystack. You say, this kid has unsurpassable worth, and you find something to affirm. And so instead of saying you're a bad kid, you say, you're a good kid, and that's why this bad behavior is inappropriate. If you're a bad kid, it would be normal for you to do bad behavior, but you're a good kid, and that's why I'm disappointed in this bad behavior. You know, you're a smart kid, so don't do this stupid stuff. Now, if you were a stupid kid, of course you'd do stupid stuff. That's what stupid kids do, but you're not a stupid kid, you're a smart kid, and therefore this behavior is inappropriate. You call out this identity of worth, and that's what motivates the change of behavior. We should be like that in all of our relationships. Spouses, find that needle in the haystack if you have to, and by faith, ascribe worth to something. It's so easy to get in this rut where you're trying to change everyone's behavior and you're shooting at each other. No, it's, if it's healthy, if it's kingdom, it's got to come out of a center where you are ascribing unsurpassable worth to the person. And in fact, our stance to the entire world is supposed to be like this. 
Our primary job as kingdom people is to agree with God about every single person we come in contact with that they were with Jesus dying for. And so our job is to look past the exterior, past the appearance, past the behavior, and in our, in our thought and in our word and in our deed, ascribe, manifest the unsurpassable worth that each person has. And if they invite us in on their life, but only if they invite us in on our life, and we're called to correct something, we do it the way God does it. We do it starting with this, this center of affirmation and calling it out, calling it forth, by faith calling it forth to stand in contrast to uh, the behavior that's going on. That's what Paul's doing with the Romans in this chapter. That's what God's still doing with us. What God is saying is, you know, there's still some people today who, who kind of draw the conclusions of the Romans. Oh, since God just loves to forgive, you know, let's just sin and then we'll ask for forgiveness later. It's, it's a light thing, it's a little thing, it's a minimal thing. And what God is saying is, no, 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 wait. Don't you know who you are? Did you forget who you are? Did you forget what I made you do? When you put your trust in Christ, Oh, that wasn't just a legal forgiveness thing. You're, you're a new, new being. Did you forget that? You participate in the death of Christ. You participate in the resurrection of Christ. Did you forget who you are? Don't go acting like you're a, this, this worldling pagan. No, you're a new creature in Christ Jesus. Did you forget that I, I feel... Remember who you are. I filled you with the Spirit. Remember who you are. You're a king's kid. Remember who you are. You've got the identity of Jesus Christ. Uh, kingdom DNA running through you. Remember who you are. You're a walking, talking temple of God. Remember who you are. You've got unsurpassable worth. Remember who you are. You're seated with Christ in heavenly places. Remember who you are. You're, you're destined for, for eternal heaven with me. Remember who you are. You're a dance person, dance partner of the triune God. Never forget who you are. And so what God is saying is, is this. Come on, you're better than this. You're better than this. You're my kid. You're better than this. You're my partner in changing the world. You're better than this. Uh, you're seated in Christ Jesus. You're better than this porn addiction you keep falling into. Now, if you were just a, you know, a junior high kid who's you know, screwed up and, and, and didn't know God, well, that would probably be understandable. But come on, what are you doing wallowing in the mud when I've seated you on a throne of grace for crying out loud? You're better than this. You're better than this pettiness that you're involved in. Come on, stand and walk in your identity. You're better than this, this, this squabbling you always get involved in. You're better than this materialism. I filled you with my spirit of outrageous love. You're better than these racist attitudes that you keep on having, this bigotry you keep on having. Come on, I, I, I've made you a kingdom person. Uh, get beyond this tribalism that you fall into. Uh, come on, I've given you unsurpassable worth, and you've got, you've got holy kingdom blood running throughout your veins. You're better than this sexual promiscuity that you keep on behaving like. And he calls out this identity. He calls it out and says, you are this. Therefore, don't go living like this. No, it's against your nature. It's against your nature. God does it to us, and our job is to do it with one another. And this is why Paul says in verse 11 of chapter 6, he tells us who we are in Christ. It, this isn't just poetry. We really did die with Christ. We really are resurrected with Christ. And then Paul says, Therefore, consider yourself. Logizomai. Think about yourself. Picture yourself as being uh, dead to, unto sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. The main battle we fight is the battle between our ears. Can you get your mind to line up with God about who you are? Can you get your mind to line up with God about who everyone else is? See, a lot of times people will say, you know, I'm dead to sin. Man, it doesn't feel that way. Uh, it feels like I'm very much alive to sin. Thank you very much. But see, don't follow the evidence for crying out loud. What are you doing paying attention to the evidence? 
Uh, no, that will just get you in trouble. Here's the evidence. Here's what God says about you. And what God says about you is true because God knows you better than anyone else on the planet ever could. And, and if your mind doesn't agree with that, well, then there's something screwy with your mind. Your brain damage is like the rest of us. You got lies and deception and all sorts of other junk going on in your mind. The, you got to know what's true and use that to reprogram yourself, to get out of this diabolical matrix that the pattern of this world infuses us with and get yourself free. Get yourself free. Just jump out the back, Jack, make a new plan, stand, don't need a decor, Roy. Just listen to me. It's, hop on the bus, Gus. I'm talking about Jesus. <laughs> oh, that was really corny. That was really bad. Forgive me. I asked for your forgiveness. That was, oh, zingers. Where'd that come from? Well, look at You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And the truth is this. You really are a new creature in Christ Jesus. And, and, and if you can begin to make it a discipline, uh, an act of discipleship, to see yourself. What do you look like when you're a walking, talking temple of God filled with the Spirit? What do you look like when you're walking in your identity in Christ Jesus? What do you look like when you really are a person who believes that you have unsurpassable worth? What do you look like when you're fully sold out to the kingdom? Run, run videos of that. Rehearse that in prayer in your mind. And see, as you see that, the incongruity between that... And your behavior begins to be apparent. And as you see that, it's like uncorking a faucet. The reality, see, we're not making this up. This isn't like pop psychology, the little train that thought it could, you know, think positive thoughts. What, this is rather just thinking in line with reality. This really is true. Get your mind to line up with what is true, and it uncorks truth in your life. And that's how all transformation takes place. And that's why Paul doesn't mention behavior until verse 12. Behavior is the problem. But it really is a symptom of the problem. He first goes after identity and then goes after our brains. Here's your identity. Think your identity. Act your identity. That's the pattern. Now, it says something true about, uh, profound about us. Romans 6 does. But it also says something profound about baptism. And here's what it says. Paul here, as you know from last week if you were here, everybody in the New Testament, as soon as, you're, as, soon as you believe and as soon as you turn around, you're baptized. They, they didn't postpone this. So Paul can assume that everybody's been baptized. And now what he does is he appeals to baptism as a way of reminding the Romans about who they are. He says, wait, wait, wait. The way you're thinking now is so screwy. Uh, Maybe you need uh, a a review on what your baptism meant. And so he's reminding them of their identity on the basis of their baptism. This is the covenant sign. It'd be no different than if you're out with a male friend and this male friend starts, you know, flirting too much with some gal and is thinking about cheating on his wife. You just might want to say, hey, dude, um, what's that gold thing on your hand? Uh, that's, what does that ring mean? Oh, that's right. You took a vow, didn't you? Uh, maybe you were forgetting this, but you're married. And when you're married, you don't act like this. You, you need a reminder on your identity. And so the covenant sign is a reminder in case you forget. Here's the reminder. What Paul is saying is this. You're you're, you're thinking and acting as though what is true is not true, so you need a reminder about what is true, and baptism serves to remind that. More specifically, Paul says, when you were buried in baptism, you were buried into Christ. The going down into the water, it, it manifests the truth that by faith... We participate in Christ's death. It's as though we ourselves died. That's the, the, the sinful self, the self that's at war with God. It died. And when you come up out of the water, you're manifesting the truth that now you're resurrected to new life. You've got new life running through you, you see? In some ways, you might think of baptism as the tombstone for the old self and the birth certificate for the new self. 
It's a tombstone. If, if you forget you're dead, well, here's your tombstone. Just read it. There, see, you're dead. Your baptism is your tombstone. It's also your birth certificate. If you forget that you're a new creature in Christ Jesus and that you have resurrection life, the baptism is there to remind you. Now, a tombstone doesn't make you dead, does it? But if you're dead, you should have a tombstone. And a birth certificate doesn't make you alive. It takes a whole lot more to make you alive. But if you are alive, you should have a birth certificate. So also, baptism doesn't make you a kingdom person. It doesn't save you. But if you are a kingdom person, you ought to be baptized. You ought to have the, the sign of the covenant. So Paul here is appealing to them uh, to remember their identity on the basis of, uh, of their baptism. This is why. The only kind of baptism we practice is the baptism of immersion. And we're not legalists about this. We don't think it should divide the body of Christ. We honor the conscience of people who don't quite see it that way. If they, if they consider their infant baptism as a sign of the covenant. But, but we in integrity have to be honest with how we read the word. And we only practice immersion because this captures the symbolism of being buried and resurrected. You see how that goes? Uh, the, the, the meaning of baptism is tied up with the, the immersion. The, the going under and coming up out of. There's other indications, I would argue, that indicate that the New Testament practiced baptism by immersion. Just to give a couple of examples. One is the word itself. The word is baptizo. It literally means to dip. There's a different Greek word for sprinkling, but that's not the word that's used here. It means to dip or to dunk. Another indication, Acts chapter 8. We looked at this passage last week. Philip is preaching to this Ethiopian eunuch. He jumps in the chariot, starts explaining Isaiah 53. A little while later, as they're traveling along, the eunuch sees some water and says, Look, here's some water. What should stand in the way of my being baptized? Now, what's interesting is that everybody in the uh, Middle East walks with water. It's, they carry a flask. Um, uh, and, and if baptism was by sprinkling, that would have been enough. You just sprinkle them right there in the chariot. But yet it was uh, only when they came upon a body of water that the eunuch says, Oh, now I can be baptized. Another example of this is found in John 3. It says, John the Baptist was baptizing at uh, Enon near Salem because, because there was plenty of water there. Polis is the word, an abundance of water. So you've got to ask the question, why did John the Baptist need an abundance of water? Uh, if it was done by sprinkling, a, a flask would have been enough. An, enough. Here's another interesting one. don't know if you ever noticed this or not. But this is the baptism of Jesus. And it says, Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn apart and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Now, notice there that the picture is Jesus is, uh, just as he's coming up out of the water, he's obviously looking up in the sky. Which means his back is facing the ground. He's coming up out of the water, and then he sees the heavens open up. Now, if he's coming up out of the water, that means he first must have went down into the water, which is what suggests that baptism was done by immersion. But the main point is that the sign of the covenant is, is, is about our burial to the old and our resurrection to the new. And therefore, we only practice baptism by immersion. Again, it's not a legalistic thing. We welcome covenant partners who uh, yet regard their infant baptism as being the sign of the covenant. We don't think it's, it's not a, a matter of salvation, but it is a matter of, of, of some importance. And so uh, I, I want to ask this. Two questions. One is, is God dealing with you perhaps about baptism? Uh, however significant your infant baptism may have been if you were baptized as an infant, it, it's, it's appropriate to own that for yourself as an adult. And is God dealing with you on that? And God doesn't hold us accountable for things we don't yet see. 
But he does hold us accountable for things we do see. And so if you begin to see that, I would encourage you to sign up at the desk uh, to take our next baptism class. And we're going to have another church-wide baptism in August. Or you don't have to wait for that. Uh, uh, it happens all the time around. It, nothing in the Bible says you have to have an REV in front of your name to baptize somebody. That's not a New Testament thing. Any believer can baptize any other believer. And it happens around here quite a bit where a small group, someone in a small group will all of a sudden see that they need to be baptized, and the group goes out to a lake or a hot tub and baptizes them. So you don't have to wait for a church-wide thing. You can do it whenever you see it. Uh, that's a fine thing. But I encourage you to act on that. When you see it, you act on it. A second question is simply this. Do you know who you are? Do you really know who you are? Do you really know what God has done for you? Do you know your identity? None of us, I, I doubt any of us, fully know that. We maybe believe it theoretically, but the tapes that run in our head on a regular basis are, to a large degree, the reruns of stuff we inherited from our mom at Target when we were five years old. You're a worthless piece of whatever. And as long as that is running and has authority and creates emotions in you, that is your experienced identity. And the job, the main job of discipleship is between the ears. To consistently rehearse as an act of discipleship who you are in Christ. Do it in full color. See that. Daydream about your identity in Christ. However much it contradicts your experience and behavior and the tapes in your head, see that by faith. And then to take that truth and confront the lies and get yourself free. That's what it's all about. Praise God. Now here's what I want to do. Uh, uh, we're gonna, at 2 o'clock, we're going to have a baptismal service at Lake Phelan. Those who are going to be baptized today, uh, we just kind of want to honor you and pray for you. Would you stand? Uh, who's going to be baptized today? Stand up. You're going to be baptized. Stand up. All right. Ready. Woo! Ready to go. Stand back. Wonderful. Praise God. Wonderful. Stay standing. Stay standing. All right. Okay, you guys. Church, disagree with me as I lead us in prayer uh, for this. Nothing of a kingdom value happens apart from prayer. So just uh, pick out one or two of these folks and pray for them as I lead us in prayer. Father, we just thank you for the journey that these folks are on and the fact that this journey has brought them to this point. We pray blessing on them, Lord. You always reward obedience, and so, Lord, we just pray that you reward this act of obedience by pouring out your spirit, Lord God. Baptize them in, their spirit, in, in your spirit, even as you're, they're being baptized in water. We pray, Lord God, that this would, in fact, be such a meaningful time, that it would be the tombstone for the death of the old self and the birth certificate for the new life that's, being, that's been created through Christ Jesus, Lord God. Lord, use this time of baptism to bless other people that are out there on the beach, Lord. Uh, Lord God, use it to draw them into the kingdom, Lord God. And Lord God, we just pray that this would be a, a transitional point, maybe a time where some go from second gear to third gear in the kingdom, or from third gear to fourth gear, or from fourth gear to tenth gear, whatever it is, Lord. Use it as a time to bring them closer to you. Father, we thank you that, that you have created in them the heart that is willing to publicly take a stand to deny Satan, his pomp, and all of his works, and to be sold out for the kingdom. We bless you and we bless them. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 Praise God. Amen. Wonderful.